Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The next time you're shopping for mountain bike gear, check out singletracks.com/deals. Each week, we share our favorite product picks and exclusive coupon codes from our partners. You can also use the page to search for whatever you're buying, from complete mountain bikes to brake sets and tire sealant. That's singletracks.com slash deals. And to get our weekly picks delivered to your inbox, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. Links to the newsletter and deals page are in the show notes. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Singletracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Mike Giese. Mike is an industrial designer based in Salt Lake City who has designed products for bike brands like Revel, Trust, and most recently, Evil Bikes. Evil just announced their first electric mountain bike, the Epocalypse, and we're curious to learn about some of the design challenges that were involved. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Hey, thanks for, thanks for having me. Definitely appreciate the opportunity. And, um, Definitely love the love the chance to talk shop. Yeah, right on. So, what's your background? How did you get into designing mountain bike products? Yeah, so I mean, honestly, it's all just kind of fueled by my passion for two wheels, and that mm. you know goes all the way to to my upbringing. Um, I grew up at the start of uh, age eight racing motocross, and um, oh, cool. you know that was definitely in, very well ingrained in our in our family. We uh, went to the track every weekend. My my brother, my dad, my stepmom, and myself. Um, that was oh, definitely wow. a big part of our lives, and um, that definitely sparked the uh, you know sparked the flame for that two wheel passion of mine, which has really kind of got me to where I am today. Um, mm-hmm. My first kind of hack at hack at actually like you know do, doing some some sort of design work was um, having the opportunity to um, get a custom helmet painted when I was um, at age eleven. So oh, cool. my brother and I got got some brand new you know white shiny helmets. Um, we had the chance to sketch up some you know rudimentary colored pencil designs and um, gave those designs to the helmet painter who was actually like a local local dude in town. So oh, cool. sure enough, those uh, helmets came back just as we sketched them. You know with you know look just like the colored pencil drawings. Um, <laughs> yeah. Mine was hot pink with checker flags, slime balls, glitter, gold pinstripes. <laughs> definitely the works. And it was everything that you know, an 11 year old would, would want. Then um, kind of fast forwarding a little bit that uh, motocross um, kind of motocross way of life for us uh, transitioned into how I actually turned pro and started racing the pro ranks um, at age 16. So, I traveled the country racing the AMA Outdoor Motocross Nationals for about seven years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, shortly after turning pro, I realized I wasn't really lighting the world on fire by any means. So I started to go to school for uh, for, for engineering. And um, after a few years of engineering, I switched over to design uh, ID. Okay. And around the same time of switching to ID from engineering, um, I kind of got ingrained with the uh, just laundry list of injuries from racing motocross and essentially that burnt me out from the sport. Mm. So I definitely left the professional uh, side of racing and focused on, um, on school and also growing my interest in bikes. And, um, okay. More, more, more specifically, I was drawn to the downhill mountain biking side of things just cause it's a, uh, you know, close correlations to uh racing motocross. 
And, um, yeah, obviously growing up, you know, my, my brother and myself, we had bicycles and, you know, kind of like any kid, we roamed the neighborhood on our bikes. We built jumps and active con- construction sites, which probably wasn't the smartest. <laughs> Yeah, You know, even like wander down to the local skate park and then, you know, watch the big kids, you know, ride bikes and the bowls and stuff like that. Fast forwarding a little bit, um, age 16 is kind of when I actually really found mountain biking. Um, I went up to the local bike park, Trestle Bike Park in Colorado, mm-hmm. and I brought my uh, hardtail dirt jumper up there and didn't have a front brake, you know, slick street tires. And as it was very sketchy, it was uh, definitely a... a, a a hook into the sport uh, for myself. And that's kind of when I realized like, whoa, like I, I definitely want, want to be a mountain biker. So yeah. at a uh, 16 is when that, you know, real transition started hitting fast forward to college. Uh, after my switch to ID, I switched my mindset from wanting to, you know, be in the moto industry, say like, you know, an end goal as a entry level engineer in, in school was like, you know, to work mm-hmm. for say like pro circuit Kawasaki work for the factory team, making cool trick high end parts in the background. Yeah. But, um, you know, as my kind of switched to focus to bicycles, um, kind of, you know, switched my focus in career to the cycling and mountain bike industry. This is actually when I kind of stumbled upon Evil. Um, I, was, I was, you know, searching online for, for my next mountain bike and saw an Evil Revolt. And I was just fascinated by the name, fascinated by the looks of the bike and just the overall ethos and presence of the brand. And, you know, as, a, as an eager uh, design student in an aspiring downhill racer I, I reached out to the owner uh, kevin walsh and kind of started our uh, conversation you know essentially led to our friendship down the road mm, cool and then yeah and then uh after college uh, i got a start in my career at a small design agency in northern colorado we uh designed uh products for the outdoor industry mainly focused on motocross uh motorsports and cycling so Everywhere from, you know, moto helmets to mountain bike knee pads to motocross gear to goggles, gloves, you know, anything under the sun that, you know, is, is, is a wearable piece or a functional piece in the outdoor industry. We definitely had our hands on. So it was pretty cool to get involved in a lot of products outside of, of the cycling industry. Yeah. And then um, out of the blue, I got connected to uh, Dave Weagle through, through my friend Kevin Walsh. And Dave was working on this on this new project, which uh, fast forward was uh, later known as Trust Performance. So mm-hmm. I um, got on board with uh, Trust Performance at the, at the ground level. Um, I was definitely, you know, definitely thankful to be working alongside industry legends like Hap Seliga, Jason Shears, Dave Weagle, and you know a few mm-hmm. other other of the ground level employees. And it was definitely a super cool experience to kind of you know be a part of a team. I was kind of pushing the bounds of what's you know acceptable within our mountain bike industry it's definitely a polarizing product like as as it would agree you know yeah. looks and and function aside but it was a good exercise and very cool experience to think outside the box and work work alongside you know alike individuals who you know aren't afraid to you know push the bounds and do do something different then mm-hmm. following my time at trust performance uh once again my good buddy kevin walsh he um lassoed me over and convinced me to move over to the dark side and, and join evil. And I was, <laughs> I was welcomed by the already extremely talented staff that they had, you know, the, the design team at evil's always been, you know, badass. They, you know, evil's always had great bikes. So I was definitely lucky to join alongside them and, um, mm-hmm. being evil, you know, what, what was an end goal of mine ever since I found mountain biking, you know, like I said, going back to the revolt days, I was just fascinated by the brand, fascinated by the product and, Walking through the doors, you know, first day of work at Evil, it definitely felt pretty surreal. And um, yeah, yeah, the rest was history. 
Yeah. So is your role at Evil uh, an industrial design role? I notice you guys have like kind of it is interesting Correct, job yeah. titles, but essentially you're you're doing industrial design. Yeah, yeah. So you know, Evil's a relatively smaller company, so we all wear a lot of hats. So you know, my job title, you know, it's funny, but it's uh, arts and crafts. You know, so it's basically right. <laughs> anything creative. You know, anything under the sun that. I can help, you know, advance the, advance the business forward. But yeah, um, ID and, you know, frame design is definitely my, uh, pinnacle first and foremost skill. Yeah. Well, so explain to us sort of how industrial designers and engineers work together. Cause it sounds like you had started out in engineering, uh, studying that and then moved over to industrial design. So like, what's, what's the difference? How do those two fit together? Yeah, totally. So it was actually, you know, kind of beneficial to have that little, you know, getting my feet wet in the engineering side of things and then switching over to ID because engineers definitely think differently than, than, you know, ID people or, you know, frame designers. But, you know, from the start of the project, you know, obviously this changes case by case, project by project and, you know, obviously business by business. But the fundamental groundwork of any mountain bike frame project is, you know, laying out the conception of geometry and kinematic. Okay. Our engineer, Dave Weagle, he builds out our uh, kind of geometry story and our kinematic based off conversations that we have as a group, you know, surrounding what we want the bike to be, how we mm-hmm. want it to ride, you know, how, how we want it to feel on trail and the overall yeah. experience that, that we want to give to that customer. You know, like, are we trying to give a fast, go fast, you know, plow bike? Are we trying to give like a, you know, super playful, enjoyable, fun bike to ride? So these are all kind of Stuff that we work with the engineer, you know, you know, D- D- Dave Weagle, who does all of our kinematics, you know, these are the conversations that we have to kind of create this uh, bike and this, you know, product story that we want to give to the customer. And once the kinematic is done and dusted, um, us ID uh, industrial designers, we uh, start laying out the bike of what it's going to look like from an extremely rough standpoint, you know, so like super rough, crude silhouette sketches, trying to figure out like, okay, the top tube is going to dip this low, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Then we, um, you know, turn around at the, you know, early stages of that and go back to the engineer and say, Hey, like, you know, how does this work? Is this going to, is, is this going to work structurally? Is it going to break? Is it going to, you know, be too stiff, not stiff enough, yada, yada. And then mm-hmm. usually, you know, Dave makes some notes on, okay, you know, like, you know, raise this top tube, lower this top tube, you know, the whole 10 yards of trying to make the structure as strong as, as, you know, dialed as possible. And then that kind of paints the picture of the box that, you know, we need to play, play within in, in terms of ID and making the frame look good. So it is a very parallel path working with uh, frame designers and engineers alike. You know, it's definitely back and forth and a lot of co- collaborative effort, you know, across the board. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like at Evil and I would imagine other bike brands, Sounds like engineering is kind of the start, right? Like there are certain things with the geometry and the the way that the suspension is going to work that like Mm -hmm. those can't be changed. And so that kind of takes the lead. Agreed. But I'm sure there's also conversations and like maybe arguments at times about like with the industrial designers coming in and saying something like, oh, we want this to have, you know, super clean look. We want to make like everything internally routed. And then I'm sure the engineers are like, well, yeah, that's going to be tough. And also, like, what about when people are working on their bikes? Isn't that going to be a pain? And so, yeah, is there like, how do you kind of decide who who wins those arguments? Like, is it is is there somebody who's like the final say on stuff or like how do you how do you know who takes the lead? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a definitely a very great area. Probably, you know, for, for a lot of other brands as well. It's like, right. Like, you know, I, the, usually the ID staff is, you know, has a very love hate relationship with the engineering staff, right? Like, you know, the the engineering staff's very realistic and the ID staff is very, you know, like pie in the sky, like make it look crazy cool, you know? So like, Mm -hmm. it is like definitely, you know, both parties have to swallow their, their pride and work, work as a team and, you know, kind of kind of per per topic you know the final final say party you know changes you know in 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 terms of aesthetic obviously you know id has rain and then in terms of structure and strength you know obviously we have to bow down to engineering so it's definitely a a um dance you know kind of working as a team for sure yeah yeah and i guess there's like varying degrees of that too from brand to brand like a race-oriented brand is probably going to be more on the end of like this thing just has to work and it has to be like you know dialed versus another brand that's like oh we just want our stuff to look cool and and work well enough Um, exactly yeah interesting so let's talk about electric mountain bike design and how that's different from traditional mountain bike design so one of my first questions is like, is it beneficial or even possible to take an existing mountain bike design and just electrify it? Or, or is it better to start from scratch and say, this is, this is a brand new thing. Like, let's figure out how it works. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a double-edged sword, you know? So I guess the answer is yes and no. Sure. You can, you know, say for our example, take our reckoning frame and throw a motor and battery at it, but it doesn't mean that it'll, it'll ride good, you know, the, the way that we want. We uh, took the approach of re- rethinking the strategy from the base level for this bike, you know, starting at the ground floor, we based this project off with the simple ethos of building an e-bike around the platform of our ever successful, you know, evil reckoning. Mm. That's our long travel trail slayer. And we felt like that was the best um, current platform to kind of base an e-bike from the ground level off of. But, you know, like I said, it's not as simple as just throwing a motor on a traditional bike. We tuned our kinematic, you know, to go alongside with this added weight and, you know, of, of the added electrical system, you know, mm-hmm. while allowing it to get along with our current shock tunes for, you know, spec's sake. Um, so that was definitely a fine balance of, you know, creating this uh, kinematic base around this this added weight. That was, you know, the start of the project. And that was the biggest mm-hmm. um, challenge point at the at the very ground level of this project. And then um, Beyond kinematic, we had to reevaluate the geometry and slightly adjust some of the numbers to better play with, you know, said electrical system and overall packaging concern. Mm. The, you know, the biggest thing was, was a motor and that kind of drove our chainstay length out from our, you know, tr- traditional evil 430 chainstay length to the 442 that's a spec on our, on our apocalypse. Okay. And, you know, that uh, touched on that chainstay, we actually, we're actually quite proud of that 442 number. That's um, one of the shortest in the, you know, e-bike field with a traditional 29-inch rear wheel uh, e-bike. So it makes our, makes our apocalypse extremely playful to ride and very fun. And it definitely still rides like an evil, which is, you know, first and foremost in our brain when we were working on this project. Even going deeper, you know, you, you can't add all that weight on the current tube profile structure of a, of a traditional bike. So we had to rethink every last tube, tube profile on this bike, mm. you know, with the add weight. We engineered and kind of made some new tube, tube profiles to uh, add stiffness where needed and, you know, kind of give the added support for the added weight. Touching on the stiffness side of things, that was the biggest goal of this bike. We like, made it a pretty 
hard line in the sand to allow this bike to be ridden as hard as its analog predecessors. And um, mm-hmm. we all love to go on long jumps, you know, hucks to flat, the occasional whip that, that, that doesn't come back in time, right? Like we all, we all mm-hmm. have those up our sleeves for sure. So um, we like, wanted to build a bike that, that could, you know, withstand anything that you threw at it. And a big piece of this puzzle was sticking to our uh, Super Boost rear end for the added wheel stiffness. You know, the wider spoke pattern just pairs nice with the added weight. And then we also um, stuck with a wide main pivot structure, you know, to hopefully stop the bike feeling like a wet pool noodle, you know, when you're riding it hard. So, you know, this like bike definitely, you can ride it hard, it rides like an evil, but it's still, you know, very, very uh, well, well put put together from the tube standpoint and the stiffness standpoint. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds like the the goal was to give this e-bike like a similar ride feel to the Reckoning. But at the same time, it seems like maybe there's an opportunity because this is like, this is different, right? You have a motor, you have a battery. And so, I don't know, for me, if I'm on an e-bike, like I ride a little differently, right? Like I'm much more focused on the descents than the climbs. Like the bike probably doesn't have to climb as well as a reckoning, right? Because you got that added little boost of power. So are there things that are purposely designed to be a little bit different or was it like, we got to make this thing as, as close to the, to the analog bike as possible? Yeah. So, I mean, I I think the biggest thing that was purposely uh, done different than the, you know, reckoning, for example, was the added chain state length. So most of our geometry is very in line with the reckoning minus that added chain state length. And that was just strictly due to motor packaging, but it was honestly a pretty happy accident. Um, you know, we were, we were all kind of on the fence, like what, what this, you know, 442 chain state length will feel like on the trail. And we were all pleasantly surprised that like, okay, still feels like an evil, still super snappy, super playful, but you know, it can hold a straight line and be extremely stable. So that was the definitely biggest, um, you know, forefront in our minds while, while, you know, bring this thing from the ground floor was that added chain state length and what that does the ride feel. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So no, no thoughts about like making it more slack because you figure people are going to be going downhill more or, you know, worrying about the seat tube angle, for example, maybe that's not as important, but it sounds like, yeah, you guys kind of stuck to the same, same script. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And like, you know, our, our like classic geometry story of evils, like we're not trying to push the bounds of being too long, too slack, you know, like, like we, we have very, you know, usable geometry across the globe, right? Like nothing, mm-hmm. like we have the stance that when bikes get overly long and overly slack, you know, those obviously work good for steep downhills, but you know, mm-hmm. most of the, most of the globe and most of the populace doesn't ride overly steep downhills, right? So like we try to make a bike that's extremely fun and playful to ride on any sort of trail, you know? And, you know, with that being said, like put our bike on the, on the steepest downhill around and it'll, it'll still shine. Right. So we like found, we feel like we found that secret geometry recipe that, you know, works the best of all occasions. And we didn't feel like we need to kind of dabble in changing that on this, on this e-bike. Yeah. I mean, the, the chain stays, like you're mentioning, that is huge. I mean, every e-bike that's out there right now, that is a challenge. I mean, they're, they have super long chain stays and they don't feel as playful. And so, yeah, it sounds, sounds exciting that, that you have potentially this e-bike that rides much more like a regular bike. Very much so. Yeah. Like while you're riding it, it's, um, you know, pretty frequently you kind of forget that you're on an e-bike. That's like how, you know, playful and fun is riding. Honestly, it's, it is my funnest bike to ride right now. Yeah. Awesome. 
Well, so Evil's using the Shimano drive system on this bike. Is choosing the drive system one of the first steps, given that you have to kind of design the frame around that? Totally, yeah, yeah. Kind of, kind of what you mentioned. We're uh, using the Shimano EP8 drive system, and we paired that with the 630 watt hour battery. So that's a uh, Shimano's biggest battery that they offer at the moment. Okay. That was, you know, definitely first and foremost when when we were building this bike, you know, because as as you know, every third party uh, motor and battery vendor has has you know a different package volume for their drive mm-hmm. unit and the you know silhouette that comes with that. So. First, we, you know, say, say, okay, we're, we're going to use the EP8 system, you know, that like has a, everything that we want in this bike. And then we take that and build the bike around that because that's our biggest packaging constraint is that motor and battery. So yeah. that, you know, once you have that silhouette nailed down of like, okay, this is the motor that you're using, you can, you know, place a shock, you know, wherever you want, you know, close to the motor or, you know, make it play nice with, with said package. So that was um, definitely the first, first step in, um, you know, picking picking this, this, this bike's motor system for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So what ultimately, um, made you guys go with Shimano over some of the other systems that are out there? Yeah, totally. We, uh, chose Shimano due to the fact that they have been, uh, in the e-bike game for quite some time now. Um, they have a great product and evils had a great relationship with Shimano over the years. Um, we felt it was important and honestly our duty to give the customer a platform that was globally supported and backed by a brand like Shimano. Using Shimano allows us to uh, spec a package, you know, from like basically a one-stop, one-stop shop standpoint. You know, the bike is specced with a Shimano head-to-toe, so it kind of creates a unified experience for the customer of being on a Shimano-supplied bike. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So we talked about, you know, sort of d- the idea of designing a frame around the battery and the motor. And I'm curious about like some of the strength considerations you know, a lot of these bikes, like you pull the battery out and it's like, it doesn't look like the thing should even be able to support itself, right? Like it's really thin. Like you basically don't have a continuous carbon tube on a lot of these, right? Like it's kind of just an open cavity. Like how, how does that work? Like, is that a, a challenge to design the layup and everything to make that strong enough? Or is it, is it pretty easy to do with carbon? Yeah, totally. So yeah, I mean, this like goes goes back to working with the engineers, right? Like we had made the choice to have you know an open cavity down tube on our e bike for like quick battery swaps, mm-hmm. and you know kind of like what you said, you know, it isn't a closed loop down tube, so you know the strength obviously is less than say a full closed loop, but. Mm-hmm. We, you know, cleverly build the tube profiles, cleverly, you know, work with the factory to build the carbon laminate to, you know, it's just not, it's just as strong, if not stronger than say a full wrap down tube with the integrated battery. So, you know, that, you know, comes back full circle to the engineering side of things on the start of the project. We kind of picked the road that we wanted to go down with this, uh, you know, open down tube design and built our frame around that to, you know, kind of optimize that uh, structure to be, you know, full, full strength with that open down tube and still allow allow for, you know, quick battery swaps. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty crazy because I remember when the Specialized came out with the SWAT system, right? Where there's like a giant hole cut out in the down tube and people are like, whoa, like, I didn't know that was possible. This is like that times four or something, right? I mean, it's a huge opening and it's like on the underside of the tube. And yeah, it's just amazing the engineering that's goes into that and that it's even possible. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot more involved than just say taking a, taking a hacksaw and cutting a hole in your down tube, right? (laughs) There's definitely, um, 
a lot of man hours in engineering to, you know, build that structure that actually, you know, accepts a, a large hole like that in your down tube. And, you know, we're definitely stoked, stoked with, with where it landed and yeah, stoked on the usability of being able to take your battery out in an instant. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the wiring challenges that are involved in that. Is that pretty similar to internal cable and hose routing uh, when you're figuring out where all these cables go or is there like additional challenge in figuring that out? Totally. Yeah. That's a, that's a huge uh, pain point in making any e-bike, right? Not just us. That's uh, every company across the board. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. This kind of rat's nest of wires that, that you have to try to, you know, build a, a nice spot in the frame. Right. You know, like that's just one of the, one of the challenges of many of making one of these bikes. And yeah, Unfortunately, it's not as easy as just throwing some, you know, some internal carbon guide tubes at it, um, you know, with, a, with a, you know, obviously people want the most pinner, tightly packaged frame, but it's a balancing act of needing room for the wiring while keeping the frame, you know, snug to the drive unit and battery. Yeah. We're able to package everything in a sleek way that gets the best of both worlds. You know, we built some, you know, internal spaces for wires to sit and dropper, dropper tubes to route through, you know, while giving, giving enough tolerance for like, you know, seat adjust height and you know usability like that and the goal was to build a package that was easy for our team in in-house to assemble while still looking sleek on the trail so yeah mm-hmm. yeah i'm just amazed i mean if you've never ridden an e-bike or looked at one you know you might just assume like uh, what like you got to run a wire from the battery to the motor and like <laughs> from the, the battery to the handlebar but there's actually a lot of stuff going on there right you have like a speed sensor on the rear wheel so that it knows like how fast you're going and and all that stuff so you got to route through the chain stays for that and then the handlebar itself most of these like the shimano stuff i believe it's it's routed through the handlebar right the wires and then they go somewhere yeah so uh great great touching point there um a notable change on our spec uh for this apocalypse is the evil energy bar uh this is an apocalypse specific handlebar with a built-in internal routing for the assist switch uh this helps us you know keep the cockpit free of wires and looking less like a a motherboard on wheels right like (laughs) we're trying to make a clean user-friendly experience and not trying to scare people off with a bunch of wires and you know stuff coming from the handlebars so we're definitely excited to launch this uh, evil energy bar to the world. Yeah. Uh, why is that, that, that the wires are routed through the handlebar? I mean, like our brake cables aren't, our shifter cables aren't. Is there a reason why it needs to go through the handlebar? Is that just another, was that the, the IDs having their way and like making it, <laughs> making it just look nice? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there isn't a need for it to go, go through the handlebar, you know, like you can just as easily say like, you know, attach it to the dropper post and run it with that. Just the goal is to attach the assist switch to the handle to the computer handlebar next to the stem. So we have felt that, you know, like, you know, ju- just, just like our, our, our brake cables or our shift cables are in the frame. Why not put mm-hmm. that wire through the, through the handlebar and make it as clean as possible. You know, so like that, that was definitely a stylistic choice versus engineering choice on our end. Mm. And yeah, we just felt like it, it was, uh, the right direction to go to make the cleanest looking, uh, cockpit and product. Yeah. It does seem like the electrical wires though, they're, they're definitely much thinner than like a shift cable or a brake hose. And maybe are they prone to like snagging and stuff on the trail? Like, is, is that a concern at all? 
Yes and no. I mean, it, it's all it's all where you lay it out, right? Like, say your speed sensor. If you route it on the outside of your chain stay, for example, like of course you'll be more prone prone to, you know, grabbing sticks and grabbing grabbing stuff as you ride by. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, we um definitely made the choice to keep all our wires internal and all of our cables internal, just to you know have it sleek. You know, for for example, you're picking up your bike, you don't want to un- unplug your speed sensor or your you know master con- computer. You know, like we wanted to keep keep this as user-friendly as possible and as welcoming as possible. So that's, that's why I made the choice to hide all the wires and, you know, everything that we could inside the frame discreetly. Yeah. Right on. So how do the build kit considerations differ for an e-bike versus a traditional mountain bike? You know, a lot of us laugh when we see like a new product and we're like, Oh, this is an e-bike saddle. And it's like, it's not always clear why the saddle needs to be different for an e-bike. For example, it's, is, are there a lot of, considerations like that for the build kit um yeah totally so i mean once again the biggest thing with e-bikes is the added weight to the system and um you know with that added weight you definitely want to spec you know stiff wheels high end you know high-end goods um great tires badass suspension you know to help fight against that added weight um thankfully you know on our traditional bikes we uh already spec top line wheels top line suspension great tires so we're able to carry over a big portion of our build spec to to the apocalypse Mm -hmm. which you know obviously makes everything on on our back end run more efficient so we're definitely um you know made that choice to stick with our you know a lot of our carryover parts from our traditional build kits just because we build our, our our analog bikes to you know punch above their weight which you know in fact works on the e-bike system yeah that makes sense. It seems like it's also an opportunity to like, you know, some components, they might sacrifice like comfort or durability or something because they're trying to cut weight. Whereas on an e-bike, that's less of an issue because it's already a heavy bike. And also it's, it's doing some of the work for you. So you're like, cool, e-bike, you want to carry this stuff for me? Like, I don't mind an extra, you know, hundred grams on my saddle or tire or whatever. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, I think like, like the biggest thing is durability on, on e-bikes, right? There's like more, mm-hmm. you know, power going to the drivetrain, more power going to the brakes. So so you definitely want, you know, a burlier, burlier chain, for example, or, you know, four piston brakes versus say if you're on an XC bike, you want two piston brakes to you right. know, help with weight. So like, yeah, the, 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 the weight argument, you know, like it, it all depends on where you kind of position this, this bike, if you're building the lightweight you know, kind of XE style, like micro dose e-bike, then, you know, you, you would make lighter weight spec decisions, but we like wanted to build a, build a bike that like, you know, you can, you can ride through its paces, ride as hard as you want. You know, every, everyone from the base level customer to whatever rampage winning Kurt Sorge can ride the same bike and still have fun on it. Right. So yeah. we, uh, you know, carried over a lot of those same, same parts that are, uh, tried and trusted on our, on our analog bikes. Yeah. Well, so on the topic of e-bike components, we're seeing a lot of innovation in the components, like in tires and brakes, trickling down to traditional bikes. So companies are, you know, they need a higher spec for e-bikes because of the additional weight. And then riders are finding they like that higher spec stuff because they're riding their traditional bikes harder um, and, and need that same amount of power and durability. Are there similar opportunities when it comes to the frames? Like, are there things that you guys learn from creating an e-bike frame that maybe you can take to the regular bike frames and improve them somehow? Totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, like go, go with any product, right? Like every year the bike should be getting better and better, you know, and taking, mm-hmm. taking, you know, 
inspiration at the start of a project from, you know, bikes that are working well, you know, like learning from stuff that isn't working well and just always like trying to make a better product. But mm-hmm. in terms of trickling down to an analog bike, I would bet that, you know, so some of the manufacturing techniques and kind of stiffness strategies will start to trickle down in the analog bikes. Stiffness is a big part of making an e-bike. So, you know, that knowledge and strategy will definitely be sprinkled across the board and, you know, to its uh, traditional predecessors. And, I mean, there's there's always endless opportunity for making improvements um, on the modern day analog bike and e-bike. Honestly, I mean, while we're while we're t- talking about improvements, you know, like I bet I bet you know on the e-bike side of things, like stuff will start to get smaller, quieter, more powerful, longer range. You know, starting to look blur the lines from the aesthetic of an analog bike to a to a to an e-bike. So I think that's uh, where you'll see see the most advancement. But you know, in terms of Trickling down to analog bikes, you know, frames, you know, analog frames are so good already, you know, so there's only, you know, the ceiling is semi-capped in my opinion. So I think it's just going to be a balancing act of stiffness and weight at this point. So take some of those stiffness strategies and figure out how to make them lighter for a traditional bike. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, as an industrial designer, I'm curious to know how you make decisions about touch points and usability for stuff like power switches and charging ports, because a lot of this stuff is new, right? Like bikes have been around a long time and the design has evolved and like we're at a pretty good place where it's like, all right, we know what a bike should look like and how it should work and that sort of thing. But e-bikes, they add some new things. So do you run focus groups and do usability tests or do you look at what other people are doing or how do you figure out like how to do something that hasn't really been done or it's been done, but it's not like established yet? Totally. Yeah. I mean, as anyone does, we did extensive market research and, you know, internal polling to figure out what uh, people wanted in terms of touch mm-hmm. points. Um, yeah. We, uh, you know, consciously took the position of trying to make this thing look as discreet as possible. You know, we like buried the power button underneath the top tube hid the charger port on the non-drive side to try to keep it discreet and hidden during photos. Um, and, you know, touching back to the evil energy bar, you know, we like d- designed a handlebar to hide the, hide the cockpit wire. So yeah. our, our end goal was just to make it look less like a calculator on wheels, right? Like, you know, make it, make it look more like a mountain bike, make it more acceptable to the normal mountain bike consumer, you know, and just like get, get more people interested in the e-bike space. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, you've talked a lot about the idea of sort of making this e-bike look and feel more like a traditional mountain bike that we're all used to. I'm curious with your background in pro moto and also mountain bike racing, where do you see e-bikes fitting? I mean, it seems clear that you see them more as mountain bikes than motorbikes, but are they their own thing possibly too? Like, do you think one day we'll we'll have like a, a third category where e-bikes look like e-bikes and regular bikes look like regular bikes yeah that, that's a that's an interesting one and um honestly we like try to steer away from the correlation between moto and and, and e-bike we like, feel, feel right. that it's honestly unhealthy for the growth of the e-bike sector in our sport mm-hmm. and just you know further delay the the adopting of the e-bikes into our local trail systems i mean sure it is a motorized bicycle but it's still a bicycle and the rider still has the same joys and experiences as a normal bike if not more mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, while 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 riding the apocalypse, you're under no no illusion that you're riding a, a motorcycle. You have all the same joys, same you know self expressions of riding a, riding a, a normal bike, and mm-hmm. all while doing 
all while so, you know, doing three times a lapse, you know, so you're just out there for longer, having the same amount of fun, if not more. And um, a big negative side uh, or negative outlook on e-bikes is the is the workout side of things, you know? So it's like, mm. if you want more of a workout, it's just all how you ride it, you know? You can burn some more calories by uh, switching over to, say, trail or eco mode to get those, uh, get those legs burning even more, you know? Yeah. It's uh, just so much more of an experience of just twisting the throttle like a like like a motocross bike. So we're definitely taking the stance of um, you know we don't want to correlate you know riding a riding e bike same as riding a motorcycle. We're definitely trying to you know push the side of the argument that like this is still a bicycle. It's just a different experience, and you know it just gets more people out on the trails. Yeah, yeah. I mean that makes that makes perfect sense to me, and yet there's still so many traditional mountain bike riders who are adamant that like you add a motor to a bike, it's a motorcycle. Um, but it's pretty clear once you see one, once you ride one, that it is closer, much, much closer to a mountain bike, uh, than a motorbike. And I mean, are there, is there an analog though? Like, is there, are there products out there that are essentially electric motorcycles? I mean, like, I, I mean, I haven't done a lot of research, but there's like the cake brand, right? That like, for sure, for sure. Yeah. There's like products does are, more um, of an electric motorcycle. Exactly. Yeah. There's some um, products that were starting to blur the lines a little bit, you know, like for example, the Suron bike, that's like definitely making a uh, insurgence in, in the mountain bike audience, just because it's, you know, roughly, roughly close to a size of a mountain bike. It has, you know, say a mountain bike fork and shock and like, you know, mm-hmm. price points definitely low. And I think they're going across, you know, kind of going after that like mountain bike customer so yeah you know touching on the suron the cake and probably a few others out there there's definitely some products that are blurring the lines yeah so it's definitely a balancing act of like we definitely want to separate ourselves from say a a full power twisted throttle you know electric product this is definitely still a bicycle Mm, yeah yeah it makes sense what you're saying too that like as long as these electric bikes electric mountain bikes that are being built are designed to look and feel like a mountain bike. Like that's what keeps them in that realm, right? Like as soon as we start making it, like giving it its own sort of aesthetic and, you know, design consideration, then, then it becomes a separate thing that we're like, how do we, how do we regulate this? Where can you ride it? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, but, but if we're keeping it sort of in that mountain bike realm, uh, you know, going forward, then I think, I think that makes sense. For sure. So who do you see as the target customer for electric mountain bikes like the Apocalypse? Is it geared more toward experienced riders or do you think this is going to appeal to to folks who are maybe new to the sport? Yeah, I mean, our our target audience is very open-ended. I mean, we didn't build a bike that's good for one sole target audience, like, you know, but rather build it in extension of our brand and our brand ethos, which is getting people on the trails, having fun on your bicycle. You know, that's the end goal. That's all why we do it the apocalypse is welcoming to say everyone from a newly found mountain biker, you know, all the way up to, you know, like I said before the rampage winning Kurt Sorge, right? Like we built a bike that can handle anything and everyone that you throw at it, you know, while mm-hmm. still being user friendly to the base level, base level consumer. Yeah. Definitely don't want to, you know, position our products as, you know, experienced rider products or high end. I mean, like not high end, they are high end, but we don't want to position them as like, you know, you have to be an experienced rider to, to ride an evil bike. Um, definitely want to be welcoming and inclusive to, to everyone. And, you know, that all kind of go, goes back to how we, you know, tried to hide a lot of the electrical components and hide the wires and make it look friendly for, you know, everyone from that base level consumer to the, to the, you know, 
the, you know, experienced mountain bike veteran. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I, you know, the electric bikes that I've ridden, I have a hard time imagining like someone who's brand new, like getting on one and, and being able to ride it. Right. Like, and, and also the cost, right? Like that's a, that's a big investment to make if you're like, ah, I'm new to this mountain biking thing. And to me, it, it kind of, you hear a lot of people that are concerned, right? That there are these people who are going to like never ridden a bike before and they're going to buy an e-bike and they're going to go to their local trails and they're going to, you know, not know the rules of the trail and they're going to like cause all kinds of problems. And I just have a hard time imagining that happening because it seems, it seems unlikely that someone's going to like for their first bike, they're going to buy one of these. I mean, do you see that at all? Or, or do you really think that this is something that like, I don't know, people could, could somehow start out with. Yeah. I mean, you know, like obviously this is, this is our, our first e-bike. So, you know, it'll definitely be a, a learning curve of like who's, who's going to buy this thing. But yeah, I would tend to agree with you that, you know, this most likely won't be someone's very first mountain bike, you know, due, due to, to the price point and the complexity yeah. of an e-bike. But say, for example, if, if there's an entry level rider who, who has a, you know, analog bike, you know, the, this would definitely be a welcomed addition to their fleet. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, it's definitely going to be, um, interesting to see, you know, who our, who our target audience is, is with this, with this bike and, you know, who our, you know, real customers are, um, you know, yeah. but just like, just like any, any, any evil bike, you know, we're like trying to sell, sell our brand in our, you know, in inclusivity to our brand, right? Like, you know, be, being, being a part of a part of evil, you know, being an evil owner, you know, people take pride in that. It's really cool to see uh, people's passion in our brand and in our product. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely seems like a great bike for, I mean, replacing your, your trips to the bike park almost, right? Like you can just pedal this thing up some, some pretty nasty climbs and then, yeah, just have fun taking it down. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, you know, during our testing phase, like we have this um, kind of one of our test spots close to Bellingham. It's a pretty nasty shuttle road. And like we uh, took the e-bikes out there and like we can actually pedal up, you know, obviously going going a different way than just riding the road. But we can pedal up quicker than, than we can shuttle, you know. So it's like it's basically like a self, self-shuttle, self you know, if you're solo, you don't have any friends to ride with, but you still want to go to your local shuttle spot. You can, you know, bring the e-bike out and pound some laps. Or, you know, if you're crunch for time on an after work ride you can you know put it in boost mode and blast up the hill to catch that last bit of light you know for the for the trail down and you know there's just so many different use cases for these e-bikes you know it's, it's so much more than just you know being lazy with it with it with a motor under your feet you know like there's so many different right. and it's definitely cool to see that story come to life and tell that story yeah for sure well, Mike, thanks so much for telling us about e-bike design and a little bit about the e-pocalypse. Sounds like a really awesome bike, and I'm sure people are going to be stoked to learn more about it. Totally, yeah. I mean, thanks for thanks for having me on the show. I'm definitely a big fan of what you guys do with this podcast. I'm for sure an avid listener. So, um, yeah, thanks for um, having me on board, talking shop. It's always fun. And I'm looking forward to uh, yeah, seeing what people think of this bike. Yeah. Awesome. We can get more info about the bike at evil-bikes.com. And you can also check out some of Mike's other work at mikegeezy.com. We'll have the, both of those links for you in the show notes. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye.